you know, I think I find it ironic the things that even as I, you know, as a young man was chasing after, looking for life, and I remember I had a lot of friends. We did some things we ought not to, but was the idea of being together was the idea of fellowship. And we were looking for something, and we we just really didn't know what it was. We just knew that there was an emptiness. And when you find the Lord, actually, when He finds you, but He knows where you're at, right? And you realize what you've been missing, and you realize for the first time in your life, He loves you, willing to forgive you, I love you unconditionally. It's just so good to be true, you just have trouble initially believing it. How could this be? How could God care so much? Paul is, this is his first epistle that he wrote. Of all the 14 that he wrote, which I'm giving him credit for Hebrews, and the New Testament, it is probably initially one of the most terse in the sense that he is right there in their face because of what's on the line. The gospel. There is only one gospel. There is only one way to heaven. This is, though we may be tolerant and inclusive of people for what they may believe, we are exclusive like every other approach, other religion may may seek to approach God. We get called as Christians for being exclusive, like, oh, Jesus isn't the only way to God. All roads lead to God. Well, okay, I'll give you that. All roads may lead to God, but not all roads give you the same result. (laughs) We'll all stand before God. We'll all answer. But there's only one gospel. There's only one message of the good news that can bring you into a right relationship with God. And so Paul is going to defend that in this particular letter to the Galatians. Now, Galatia is a province in Asia Minor, which is Turkey. But in those days, it was sort of the central province, sort of in the middle of that area uh, on the north of the Mediterranean there. And he planted several churches in that area um, on his first missionary journey. It would have been Barnabas that would have been with him at that point. And as it were, what followed is that people from Jerusalem, the Jude- we refer to them as Judaizers, those who, they had received Christ, but they were adding works to the message. It was Jesus as Messiah, but you've got to be circumcised. Jesus as Messiah, but you also have to keep the law of Moses. And so the temple had not yet been destroyed, <clears throat> so they were still doing the sacrifices. And God would, at some point there in 70 AD, completely wipe that out, so they no longer, the Jews no longer had that. But it was this, the mixture that was, they were bringing these people that followed Paul around. He would plant the church, establish leadership, and then move on. They would follow behind him and bring confusion by laying this other doctrine on them. Thus, that was the mission of the Judaizers. 
And so as we get into this here, you'll understand uh, why Paul was so straightforward because of what was at stake. And I also think there's a, a bit of youth, in, in a sense. His first epistle, well, I can just say from my own personal experience, my first sermons, <laughs> well, you know, when you're a novice, it, it, you, you struggle with things, right? Oh, I still struggle on occasion, right? But you're you're not as polished, let's put it that way, when you first start out. And so Paul, he, he's, a, he's a cleric, he's a driver, man. He's going to get the job done. And so it's more, you know, get, this is what's important here, and, he, and he's sort of running over people's feelings. And a lot of people have trouble with, with boldness, they have trouble with frankness, and Paul, because of the intensity of the issue, uh, he doesn't miss any words here, as we'll see. But let's talk a little bit about Paul. His name is, his Hebrew name was Saul, same as the king, it means to ask for. Now, Saul, the uh, in the Old Testament, was the first king of Israel, and, and that's uh, interesting that the Lord would pick a man whose name means asked for. <laughs> you know, Israel asked for a king so we could be like the rest of the nations, you know. They weren't satisfied with God, with Yahweh being their king. They, they wanted an earthly king. So he gave them one. It didn't work out so well, did it? <laughs> the first guy would go around anyway. But Paul is the Greek name for Saul, and it means little. And Paul sort of fit that physical description, and legend has it, or some writings have it, and some of the apocryphal writings, that he was a, a man of small stature. I can relate to that. <laughs> he had a bald head. Hold on here. He had a bald head, crooked legs. <laughs> but a strong body, a goodly body, eyebrows meeting, and a nose somewhat hooked, and he was a very friendly guy, and the face of an angel. So I only bring that up because in our culture, Hollywood and all, there seems to be this emphasis on the outward. We're a lot more hung up on the outward than God is. Now, don't get me wrong. I think you need to wash and bathe and take care of yourself and take care of your body. You know, you need to you know, take care of your horse, you get more mileage out of it, right? You know, it's important. To, you take, we take care of our bodies. But the overemphasis, I think, is, is a, a bit much in our culture. Um, think of Jesus. The Bible says there is no comeliness in him that we should desire him. Jesus, accordingly, uh, if we interpret that, uh, I, I think, the accurate way, uh, he wasn't, wasn't the most handsome guy. Uh, but that's not what made him beautiful. The outward is not what makes a person beautiful. Not what we see outwardly is not what makes a person beautiful. It's the spirit. I mean, some of the most beautiful outwardly are the most ugly people on the inside. And so uh, it's amazing how um, we can get that out of out of order. But God uses some of the most unique people. It does, it, so it really doesn't matter what we look like doesn't matter how you're built, if you're short or tall, fat or skinny, it doesn't really matter. You can be a vessel of honor if you'll sanctify your, let your life be sanctified and set apart. And um, I find it interesting, some of the people who ha maybe uh, 
lack the outer beauty that we are so caught up in have some of the greater graces placed upon them and have been used by God in such powerful ways. So let's not get hung up on that aspect of it. Paul would not have fit a kingly role at all, but he was the mightiest of all the apostles in his works, according to what has been written anyway, and from my perspective anyway. And so he begins here in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we have here the typical introduction, in a sense, the grace and peace part. But what he adds here from the first is unique in the sense that he he introduces himself as an apostle. And an apostle is, is a one who is sent. But here it it has it's it's more than just a person who's sent with a message. It is an appointed representative with an official status. I mean, this is what Weiss has, has told us. It's, it's as though he were dispatched by the king himself to deliver a very important message to uh, the citizenry, as it were. And so he is stating his apostolic authority as not being from men, nor the institution of men. And again, this is another uh, hint along the way that it doesn't matter what you look like. It's who you are on the inside that matters. And it's not whether you've been appointed by men to do the work of the ministry. It's whether or not God has called you. Whether God has appointed you. And this is the important thing to establish here. There are people who are called to the ministry that have never been to Bible college. There are people that are called to the ministry that... They're, maybe they might even be newborns, but God's going to develop them. God's going to grow them, and God's going to place them where they belong. Think about the, the fishermen. He took fishermen. I mean, these are the, the peasants of the day, so to speak, right? And, and who are these men, you know, the, the, the Pharisees, you know, after the resurrection and the, and the day of Pentecost came, and they're working these miracles, and, and they're preaching with such boldness. And the, the bringing the word of God to the people, and they, the Pharisees are like, wait, these guys have never studied. They've never learned. But they did observe that they had been with Jesus. That's, really, that's the qualification right there. Are you willing to spend time with Jesus, get, get a revelation from him as what he's called you to do, listen to his voice, study his word, receive the message, and deliver it to other people? That's really what the ministry is all about, and, and meeting the needs of the people. You know, we have this misnomer that ministers, and I've seen this a lot in the church, that the pastors want to be pampered by the congregation. Oh, we're here to serve the pastor. Well, no, <laughs> that, is, that is directly opposite of what a minister is. A minister means slave, servant. You're the one who washes feet. You're the one who serves the people. You're not here to, to be served by the congregation. You're there to serve the congregation. And so this is sort of uh, 
been twisted by, uh, as it were, the clergy of the day. And I have a couple examples. I can share one of them. Uh, when we pastored in Charleston, we used to have the agape feasts and things, and we decided we'd just have one at our house one time. And so we invited the church out, and people came, and, and uh, we had an elderly widow in our congregation and she decided to bring uh, one of her friends and and which is what we encourage and so she let us in on this conversation that she'd had before uh, they arrived uh, that they were coming to the pastor's house and they were going to eat and she goes what you're going to the pastor's house Preacher. preacher's house there you go <laughs> the preacher's house and she goes yeah he said, well, okay. She was just stunned. And then she got there, and I just happened to be barbecuing, you know. <laughs> That's your pastor? What's he cooking for? <laughs> and she's kind of giving her the rundown, like, this is, it, he's not really a pastor, is he? Preacher, really, right? <laughs> yeah, he's the preacher. <laughs> so it's just, it's easy to get, you know, a misunderstanding of what it means to be called to the ministry. And one of the things about Paul is you see he was a tent builder. He did he had a, he was a bivocational because he didn't want to be chargeable to the church because this whole thing with money. And I struggled with this for years in planting the churches. You you know, you just you know, so I worked many years just not taking anything from the church. And it wasn't until some of these present guys in the church here said, you know, look, this isn't right, you know, and they, they stepped up and corrected me, and I'm thankful for what the Lord has blessed us with uh, here, and so, but in that age, in that time, it would have been something, as it were, that they could have accused Paul of, well, the reason he's doing this is he's using it to, to fleece the people, he's getting paid. But they couldn't bring that charge against him because he only received, in fact, a lot of people, he would leave and then they would send somebody to chase him down and give him support. And you can see, you know, through some of his epistles where he, uh, that's what happened. They would later on send support to Paul because they found out that he was in such need. So, uh, again, those are the things that reveal the motive, you know, of why a person is doing what they're doing. And see, God is... God. God cares about what we do. But I think what's more important for you and I when it comes to ministry is why are we doing it? What is the motive behind uh, the, what we are doing and why we are doing it? Because that's really what we're going to be judged for as well as the works themselves. And so these Judaizers would knew that Paul was not part of the Twelve they sort of considered him a renegade because he, after all, he was, you know, part of the Jewish Judaism, and now he's left all that for Christianity, and he's out here talking to the Gentiles, those those dogs, the the the, the Gentiles whom God rejected because of, you know, their worship of false gods and all, and and it was through the mission of the gospel that God was welcoming the Gentiles back in to His family. And that was Paul's mission, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, which he did. He took, ended up going to Spain, which in their world at that time, that was considered the ends of the, of the world. So let's get into this a little bit better. What he is doing here is 
this whole idea of mixing uh, together the idea of works and faith and confusing it and with grace and all and leaving the people in a state of uncertainty really because this is what false doctrine uh, does but notice he says here that he was not um, by man as we've covered here and and so how do we know that Paul was not ordained by man look at the fruit and so how we go about appointing people to office in the church or we simply recognize what God is doing in a person's life if you are eldering, if you're apt to teach and you have a shepherd's heart and you, you're watching over the people, you care about the needs of the people, you're walking in that, you, then you are an elder, whether you're recognized by the church or not. So we allow that to unfold within the body of Christ. And we, when we see someone ministering a lot, the word and we see him nurturing people, then that's when we would recognize that gift. It isn't, it isn't that we have these offices in the church and they have the labels there, and we have the hole, so we need to plug somebody in there. No, no. We want people walking in the calling before we recognize it and ordain them in a way. So Paul, in a sense, he was vindicated by his works. I mean, 14 epistles, I would say he was pretty much called by Jesus. He had, he had a personal encounter with the Lord. He saw the Lord. He spent three years getting indoctrinated by the Lord there in Arabia. And so, you know, you can't, you know, how much more do you need? Well, you know, you need to go to Bible college, you know. And I'm not, I've been to Bible college, I get that. I think that's important. If you feel a call in your life uh, to the ministry, I think you, God uses prepared people. I spent the first 10 years or longer of my life uh, learning the Bible on my own, studying, you know, listening to a lot of tapes, listening to Pastor Chuck. Uh, back then it was on cassette tapes. <laughs> and got rooted and grounded before I went to Bible college. Um, but I think God uses prepared men, and you have to prepare yourself in the Word and know the Word and that's and see what God will do after that. But uh, just because a person, on the other hand, just because a person has been called, uh, goes to Bible college, doesn't necessarily mean he's called to the ministry. There are a lot of people in the pulpit today that have no business being there. They've taken on the profession because, well, you know, I don't want to work physically. And I, you know, it's just easy. And they're lazy. <laughs> you know, so you get it. <laughs> so notice he says here, um, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. I mean, this, um, you know, this whole thing of the resurrected Christ, this is essential. Without the resurrection of Christ, we have no gospel, right? And then he says, with all the brethren who are with me. Paul was not a lone ranger. There are some people who, well, I know, hey, God revealed himself to me. I don't need the body of Christ. I, I, I'm just going to do what God's called me to do. As if it's, you know, it doesn't include everybody else. I mean, this is, this is again, the, we have an independent culture. We're, you know, Americans, we're, we're independent people, man. We don't really need other people, you know. We can get what we want and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and all that. But Paul was not a lone ranger. He had a ministry team. Luke was with him. You know, the Bible says you're to go out in twos. I mean, that's sort of what we were led to believe. But he had, so he had Barnabas initially. There was Silas later on. Timothy was with him. Luke was with him. So he had this ministry team put together. And when you're serving, there's, there, there's just strength in numbers. 
in, in that case. I mean, you're, um, especially in the world in which he was living. So this is, again, Paul's not out there just doing his own thing. Well, you know, I had this revelation from God. I met with Jesus. There's a humility here. He understands the dependency that he should have as a minister to the body of Christ. Now, this is a, a fault and something that God has shown me over the years. First of all, to be called to the ministry is a dangerous calling. It's just flat out, it's dangerous. The world, the flesh, and the devil, money, women, and pride, those things are always knocking at the door because we are a fallen, we're fallen people. And it's important that we understand that. So the gospel I preach to you, I must always remind myself I am in desperate need of it just as much as the next guy. And it'll never change. And the, the accountability that we're to have with members of the body of Christ needs to be employed. I, you know, when, when pastors begin to think they're, well, the people need this, and they no longer want to intermingle and, and hang with them, so to speak, that's a dangerous place to be. I have seen, you know, you begin to think you're something you're not. And that you're, the, the reason why this church has grown to be so big is because of me. Now, they don't say it in those words, but actions are sometimes louder than words. So, very important that pastors, no matter how church big the church may become in a local setting, there's got to be that accountability. There's got to be the pastoral staff interacting with the members of the body of Christ. This is where the accountability comes in. So I just feel like that's a very important thing here. Verse 3 where he says, Grace to you and peace. Now Paul didn't, again, this is sort of a, a New Testament thing with the epistles, but where does it come for, from? I think it comes from number 6. I've shared this before. Uh, number 622, you know, the Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to Aaron and his sons. This is uh, number 622 saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. And this is very, I don't know about you, but that statement right there alone totally encourages me as a pastor. Aaron, this is the way you're going to bless the children of Israel. He didn't say, Aaron, I want you to think up a way that you could bless these people. He didn't leave it up to the priesthood. This is how you do it. And this is the comfort you have when you're called to the ministry. No matter what level it is, at all, you know, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you're a deacon, you have to rely on God to give you what you need to do your ministry. This is the way that you'll bless the people. And God gives it to you at whatever level of ministry it is. It's not something, you know, the worship team, they just sit down and, God help me, you know, I need some songs. <laughs> what would bless your people? Oh, well, I know what it will be, you know. No, you lean on the Lord. Just ask them, they'll tell you. God just never fails to give them what they need uh, to get the job done. And I thank God that they're willing to do that. What a blessing it is. But you think about that. What grace is always before peace. There are the two connected terms here that almost inseparable. They're like twins. Grace, as we know, is unmerited favor. But it, beauty, charm, it's all of that. You know, it's, it's, the result of it is, is, you know, and really this word here, charis, gladness. That's the result of experiencing it. In the Hebrew uh, form of, um, ne is to show, 
is compassion. You've had compassion shown to you that, that is grace. Something that you uh, didn't deserve, but it just was placed upon you. Grace first. So if, when you read that there in Numbers, it says the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So you shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. And so isn't that a wonderful thing? It's always grace first and then peace. And of course we know peace is shalom in the Hebrew and that is to experience as it were heaven on earth. When someone said, we, it's a greeting in the Hebrew culture, shalom. And so it, it, it's just, and we'll get into this sometime, but not tonight, because I love this word. Uh, it's rich, but it is everything that your soul, everything that your body, everything that involves your person, may it be blessed with the blessings of heaven. A tranquil mind. A protected home. All, all of your physical needs met beyond your wildest dreams. It's just, it's experiencing heaven on earth when someone would say that. So it's a very rich, and this is what God wants for his people. He wants his people to be blessed. But, so I love, I love this thing, and I think Paul, in writing to the churches, had this in mind when he wrote Grace and Peace. The Lord, he wants the Lord to shine on the church. May his face be, you know, think about that means God's looking at you. When you see someone's face, that means they're looking at you, right? You get the face-to-face going on. That means God is acknowledging me. It's a personal thing. The Lord, make his face to shine upon you because he is unapproachable light. He's a consuming fire. This is kind of scary, but, you know, shine. And then the Lord lift up his countenance. So, like, he comes into the room, he lights the place up, right? I mean, there's a lot going on here. And peace. And then I'll put my... And this is one of the things that when we pray for people in the name of Jesus, when we anoint them with oil and we put God's name on them, you know, the Bible says we have God's mark on our foreheads, something we can't see. It's an identifying mark. But His name is on us. That means you belong to God. You are God's property. Isn't that cool? Nothing's going to come near you that doesn't come through the filter of his love. This is just a beautiful uh, opening salutation, Lord, given to, uh, by Paul in his letters to us. And so this whole idea of God shining upon us, lifting his countenance upon us, is an invitation for us to respond to his love. So important that we respire. If this is what God wants for our lives, to put his name on us, to, to fully engage with him, to receive eternal life, life forevermore, the abundant life, it's incumbent upon us to respond and to open our hearts. And then he sort of gives us the church here the reason, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father to whom be glory forever. So this whole idea of God's love for us. Now, God did not 
God doesn't love us because Jesus died for us. He's, he sent Jesus to die for us because he loved us. That was the initiative. Oh, well, my son died for him. I suppose I should love these people. <laughs> no. I'm going to save my people. I'm going to save my creation from the, from the curse of this fall. And I'm not going to sit back and let it happen to them. Think about the deliverance from sin, the sin nature. And this is where we, uh, Paul never loses sight of this. Deliver us from this pr- sinful body. We're delivered from the world. Think about the deliverance that you've experienced. What does that really, how does that play out? Well, First of all, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. None of us are in this room that have accepted Jesus as your Savior. When I stand and you and I stand before God, He's going to say, well, you know, September 1st in 2020, that's 20, September, I'll say yesterday, right? You remember when you thought this and did this? You know, you, no. You're not going to stand before God and He's not going to go through all your sins. Your sins, my sins, were judged already at the cross. By faith, you are now placed positionally in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. Well, so the penalty of sin is no longer upon us. Isn't that great? You're not going to be punished. The punishment for sin without it being atoned for is eternal separation from God. That's the penalty of sin. But not because God loves us so much. He's not only delivering us and forgiving us from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Sin shall not have its dominion over you. So Paul in Romans develops this thesis. And this is really what Romans is all about. Justification, sanctification, and eventually glorification. Justification is being delivered from the penalty of sin. God treats you as though you've never sinned. Yeah, but you know I have, Lord. Yeah, but I'm going to deliver you from that. That's why I'm sanctifying you. That's why I've given you my spirit so you will overcome. And so that's what the power of sin is. It's sanctification. It's God's spirit working in us. What is sanctification? Sounds like a big word. It means simply setting us apart. Setting us apart from the world and especially our sin nature. And it's power, it's draw. Paul said, I am crucified to the world and world to me. And I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He'll get into that in chapter 2. And so this is why Jesus came. I... I want to say this, and I, I'm not going to get into the next section because, you know, this is Paul's introduction. I mean, he's got a lot in this first part. And 6 through 10, it's his marvel. And his marvel is that they are turning away. And so I, what these guys were doing, and I, as I said before, is they were uh, bringing the law and laying the law on these people. You cannot grow in grace if you're seeking to live under the law. Now, it may not be the law of Moses and the do's and don'ts, but we have this little list that we can create in our mind. Well, I, I read my Bible today. I preached to someone today. I helped a little old lady across the street today. You know, we go through all these little lists. Check, check, check. Okay, God, now you owe, 
you owe me. That's works. Nobody, you, you can't earn God's blessing. You can't earn God's favor. It is grace alone. It is his unmerited favor. And grace is only experienced as I exercise faith. Works don't require faith. You just, you just do it. And then it creates, but works in our minds, it creates debt. And God is a debtor to no man. You freely receive, you freely give. So works in the Christian's life are a result of being saved. I don't work to be saved. I work because I am saved. It's an outflow. And, that, and so we'll, we'll break that down a little bit more as we get into it because this was a confusion in the, these new, newly formed churches and their new Christians that are struggling to understand uh, what it means to walk with God and how to walk with God. Salvation can never be earned. And most of us understand that uh, or should understand that. And so Dr. Heiser, I love the way he framed this and I've made it my own and you should make it your own. I share this a lot with people um, when it comes to salvation. What you in regards to salvation, he says this: What cannot you cannot gain by moral excellence, you cannot lose by moral failure. We do not relate to God on the basis of our works when it comes to eternal salvation. We are totally relating upon to God on the basis of faith. I believe what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me personally that he died for my sins and that his blood atones for my sins, that he died on that cross for me, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. He was resurrected from the dead to vindicate everything that he taught and told and fulfilled the Old Testament and the requirements of the law. When I believe that, his righteousness, which is perfect, is now placed on my account and I am adopted into God's family I didn't have anything to do with it other than belief. It was a gift. This is how Paul frames it for the Ephesian church, and I'll close with this. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, where he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together He's made us to sit together in the heavenly with Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, not of works and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul, in that, these few verses, capitalizes the position that we take as believers. That's why the ground at the cross is level. Everybody comes the same way. You come on bending knees or you don't come at all. I don't know, some of you can probably think back, how, 
when you first accepted the Lord. Now, I didn't have someone, you know, hey, would you like to say the sinner's prayer? It didn't happen that way to me. The Spirit of God just came on me as I was sitting in the living room one night. I realized the course I was heading, the direction I was headed was, I hurt a lot of people. As I sat there on that couch, the Spirit of God just brought conviction to my heart. And I asked, Lord, just please forgive me. Something happened inside me right at that moment. Because there was an acknowledgement of my sin and guilt. And I, when that, that guilt just, it's just like immediately just left me. It was like a weight. And I went upstairs and I just wept before the Lord. And I didn't know anything about the Bible. I hadn't even read my Bible. It was just the Spirit of God just, you know, just drilling down in the deepest part of my heart. And that's what God does. It's a very, very personal thing. But this is what happens. We just, it's a gift waiting to be received. And all you have to do is ask for it. It's just a wonderful thing. Father, we thank you for the way you've made salvation so very easy. Little little people understand it. Children get it. They know they, we all know we sin, Lord. We all know we need a Savior. We're just thankful that you made the way. We're asking, Lord, that you would continue to do that work. There's a lot of people in this city that need to be saved. There are those, Lord, that know about you, but they don't really know you yet. And so we pray that through our witness, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll bring strong conviction. And you'll guide us to those people, to invite them in to your family, Lord. Lord, we pray for the, the gift of evangelism to be put upon this church. Lord, that you'll gift the church with boldness, tactfulness, and the ability, Lord, to communicate this message of salvation clearly so that people can come and be restored, be healed. As we sang tonight, to to have those shackles removed and the chains broken. Oh, Father, we pray for this miracle to be a regular thing in our fellowship here. In Jesus' name, amen.